morning, church. I want you to know as we launch this series, uh, we have a whole bunch of books, booklets back there called Discovery Bible Study. We want you to wrestle with these questions, and this is a great tool to do that. Every week is built off the message, and then page four of your message notes are something called, we call Beyond Sunday. It's also built off the message. So we would love for you to take what we do Sunday and drive it deeper into your life. So don't leave without one of these, okay? Let me ask you a question, uh, and you can see it in the text box right here. What question has most impacted your life? Sorry to be so superlative early in the morning. What question has most impacted your life? One of mine, you ready? What are you waiting for? Uh, 1990. I have a vivid recollection of when that question was poised to me. I was in the Marin Headlands. Every month I was a young youth pastor and I would uh, walk with a group of men, 20 years my senior. And they were my self-appointed board of directors. And every month we would walk and I would talk through life with them. And I had the privilege, uh, five of them are still in my life and we still get together. Uh, but they would speak into my life from a 20-year vantage point of having walked ahead of me. The question of that day that I wanted to bring to them, I was growing to love uh, a woman named Ann O'Neill Griffith. I thought I was called to a life of singleness, yet I was falling in love, and there was a, there was a conflict going on inside me. These men had watched this relationship blossom. They'd had us over. And the question of the day was for me to bring to them, how do you know when the love you share with a woman is the love you build a marriage on? And they knew what was behind that. And so I, we sat down the Marin Headlands and I, I posed that question to them and they looked at each other with a smirk and they realized Anne was out of my league. It was as good as I was gonna get. And so one of them broke the silence and said, Gary, what are you waiting for? This woman is amazing. Ask her to marry you. That question, what are you waiting for, changed everything. Next to salvation, that relationship with Anne is the second most important life-molding relationship, character-building relationship in my whole life. And it all was pushed forward by a question. What are you waiting for? Take a minute and write the question down in your text box. What question has most impacted your life? Just take a minute and think about that. It's not that easy. I've had months to think about it. You know why I know number one? I gave you the second one. Number one, I was nine years old, and it was this question. Do you really want to know? My brother had become a follower of Jesus. We were a very religious family. And he comes and announces to his family, I'm born again. He's a senior in high school. And my parents go ballistic. They didn't have a category for this. And uh, they said to him, do not tell your brothers and sisters about this. And so that night I was in his room. I'm nine, he's 17. And I'm saying, what's the difference? What's the difference? And he's, that's the number one most impactful question in my life. He said, do you really want to know? 
said, yes, even at nine, I had a hunger for God. He handed me, I still have this New Testament. He handed me a New Testament. He said, I'm gonna honor mom and dad, read for yourself. But that question, do you really wanna know, at nine years old, changed the trajectory of my whole life. I read that New Testament a chapter a night from nine to 18 until I finally gave my life to Christ after inserting the word of God for that long. Do you really wanna know? Questions are powerful, men and women. And what if the key to life is found in pondering the right questions? In our four gospels, you've heard me forecast this, Jesus was asked 183 questions recorded in the four gospels. He only answered three of them, but, in the four gospels, he asked 307 questions. Obviously, Jesus prefers to ask questions rather than provide answers. What do you think? By the way, Jesus asked that question seven times. What do you think? Asking questions was central to Jesus' life and teaching, and they weren't asked for his sake. My goodness, he knows everything, right? He knew the answers. He asked the question for the sake of the person being asked. And this fall, we're gonna explore eight of his questions and consider what they tell us about Jesus, what they say about our lives, about how to live well, and more importantly, in those questions are keys to what it means to follow Jesus, and that's why we're going through them. Life is found in the questions of Jesus. Today's question is perhaps, I believe, the most important of them all. That's why we are opening with it. It's the question of questions. Because every day, whether you know it or not, we live from the core convictions around this question. Every day. You make your decisions for character, your decisions for hope, your decisions for the future. You uh, access and have a perspective on your past based on your answer to this very question today. The way you relate to your spouse, the way you relate to your environment, the way you relate to your kids, the way you relate to your neighbors, the way you relate to your boss, your work ethic, the way you treated people today as you walked on this campus, being here today, it's all centers around your core conviction around this very, very question. This, my friends, is the question literally of the ages of all eternity. And we're gonna look at this one today. My whole life, is built around this question. The quality of my parenting is built around this question. The way I treat my neighbors is built around this question. The hope I carry into the city is built around this question. The way I read my homepage and all the news that comes off it is built around this question. This is it, everybody. Your life rises and falls on this question. Have I piqued your interest enough? Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, please. Matthew 16. I have a question for you. I've got like 20 of them in my sermon. If we're gonna do a series on questions, I better be asking some questions myself. Here it is. Why would Jesus ever take his followers on a retreat to Las Vegas? Matthew 16. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, let's just stop right there and let me build out why Caesarea Philippi is the Las Vegas in first century Israel. 
This geographical detail is so important. Every detail in the Bible is important. Nothing is random. This one is too. Jesus is about to take his final lap on his life mission. He has primarily, primarily lived and functioned in a region about 120 miles north of Jerusalem. He's going to die in Jerusalem. He's turning the corner by Matthew 16 or Luke chapter 9, which details this, Mark. This is a decisive turn in Jesus' ministry. He's going to move from 120 miles north and make the trek, the death march, if you will, right to Jerusalem intentionally. Luke says in Luke 9, he resolutely set out after this question for Jerusalem to die. But to do that, he goes 20 miles northeast to Caesarea Philippi. Are you tracking with me in my little geography with my hands? Okay. He intentionally goes out of his way. He wants these men to go on a retreat. He's going to reveal something to them. He has yet to tell them from his mouth, I'm going to die. I am the Messiah, but not the Messiah you thought. And he goes right to Caesarea Philippi to reveal this news. Also, he goes to Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16 to reveal a word that is yet to come on the pages of the New Testament. Can I share that word with you? Do you want to know that word? Church. The first time we see the word church, ecclesia in the Greek, is in Caesarea Philippi. Why would Jesus go to Las Vegas to reveal to his men I'm about to die? Why would Jesus go to Las Vegas to introduce this concept that will reign for millennia after he dies called the church? What is going on here? Caesarea Philippi uh, was known as, as I already told you, Las Vegas. It was the sin city of Israel. Like, why, why not go to Mount Hermon, Jesus? That'd be so much better. Why not go to Mission Springs or some other conference center? Uh, it was a religious center of the region. It was known, and I got a picture of it, for a large rock outcropping in Caesarea Philippi. And at its base, you can see that cave. Uh, that cave in Jesus' day was a water source that water would flow out of. And in Jesus' day, the Greeks, the Romans, believed that water sources was a source of life. So where there was the water source, there was life. Where there was life, there was a small g, God, or God's. And so incredible pagan worship went on at this rock source. This large rock outcropping in the city was referred to as the rock of the gods. And it was referenced to the many shrines. If you go there today, and many of us have been there, uh, it shows still the shrines are there. This is what it looked like in Jesus' day. Let's go to the next one. There you go. So they built shrines and sanctuaries and um, places of worship around. Who did they worship? They worshiped Baal. They worshiped Asherah. They worshiped uh, Caesar, certainly. They worshiped this god called Pan. Anyone ever heard of Peter Pan? Yeah. Pan was uh, the god of the shepherds. Uh, and at the center of the Rock of the Gods was that huge cave that I showed you where the water source would come. They believed it was the gateway to the underworld. Or, you ready? They believed in the area called that rock outcropping where the water flowed, the gates of Hades. The gates of Hades. This is all very important when we read this text, okay? 
So in the open air pan shrine next to the cave mouth, you see this, this, these uh, sanctuaries and the niches that are built that are still carved into the rock that you can see to the day. And in those niches, in those open air uh, areas, people would worship the goddess and gods of fertility and engage in horrible, horrible deeds, partake in bizarre rites that I can't even bring to this platform. By today's standard, we'd even call them immoral. By today's standards, that's saying a lot, right? It was terrible what took, on, what took place there. So when Jesus brought his disciples to this area, they must have been shocked. I am trying to build a case for how Caesarea Philippi was the red light district of Jesus' day. The pagan, cultish, pluralistic, it was humanity at its worst, at its most broken spot. And Jesus says, come on, we're going to walk 20 miles out of our way. I've got something to tell you. And he tells them in this area. So now you know what's a little behind the region of Caesarea Philippi. Let's pick it up in verse 13. He asked his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? They replied, well, uh, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. All good compliments. Really, they're all complimentary. John the Baptist, good guy. Elijah, good guy. Jeremiah, good guy. What they all have in common, they were all like storm the gates kind of prophets. The word on the street was, in the religious community, Jesus was that political Messiah who was going to come and overtake Rome. That's kind of what's behind all those answers. The crowds are filtering their view of their Messiah through their hopes of who they wanted the Messiah to be. We all do that, right? We all form Jesus to fit into our comfortable lives. That's what the crowds are doing. Question, how would your colleagues answer the question of Jesus in verse 13? Who do people say that I am? Most people that I know in my street and where I mingle are willing to admit Jesus existed, that his teachings are valuable to a point. He even lived a pretty remarkable life, the safe and tame Jesus. Word on the street is that Jesus uh, is one that we've created to fit our lives or our lifestyles into. Would you agree? Who do people say he is? Pick your Jesus. Let's just go through history a little bit, okay? I won't take a long time. Thomas Jefferson said this. Jesus didn't mean, to, and I am, by the way, I'm not speaking in a negative way about these people. I'm just giving you the facts, okay? I'm going to talk about other religions. I'm not speaking negatively about them. I'm giving the facts, okay? We're good? Jefferson said, Jesus didn't mean to impose himself on mankind as the son of God. Mikhail Gorbachev talking about him last night at a wedding. Not to him, about him last night. <laughs> I was sitting next to Ukrainians at the table and we were talking about Mikhail Gorbachev. He said Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Martin Luther King Jr. Jesus Christ was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness. Buddhism teaches Jesus wasn't God, was he? he was an enlightened man like Buddha. 
Hinduism teaches Jesus was the incarnation of a God, a small g God, much like Krishna. Islam teaches Jesus was a man and a prophet, but inferior to Muhammad. Probably one of the most popular cultural human beings on the planet today. His name is Bono. He fronts a band called U2. Um, they're touring the world right now. He is being interviewed in Ireland about this very question. This very question, the interview turned. Listen to his answer. I think it's, the, it's a defining question for a Christian, is who was Christ. And, and I don't think you're let off easily by saying a great thinker or a great philosopher or, a, a, you know, because actually he went round saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the son of God. So he either, in my view, was the son of God or he was not. No, no, nuts. Nuts, yes. Forget yes. rock and roll messianic complexes. This is like, I mean, Charlie Manson type delirium. And I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. I, so I think, therefore it follows that you believe he was divine. Yes. And therefore it follows that you believe that he rose physically from the dead. Yes, yeah, I mean, uh, I have no problem with miracles. <laughs> I'm living around them. I am one. So, so when you pray then, you pray to Jesus. Yes. The risen Jesus. Yes. And you believe that he made promises which will come true. Yes. I do. All over the place, there's different answers. Jesus goes on. Jesus isn't so concerned with popular opinion. He's concerned with personal conviction. Can you just rest in that? It might even be worth writing down. Jesus isn't so concerned with popular opinion. He's much more concerned with your personal conviction. So he drives it down and he says this, what about you? And I looked, it's you personal. It's as if Jesus is squaring you up, not to bully you, but to give you life. Remember, life is found in the questions of Jesus. Jesus says, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Let's just unpack two things here. Messiah means the anointed one, the king of all kings, the king who will come from heaven and make everything right that's wrong in the world. Peter says, you're it. We've been waiting for you for hundreds of years. You are that Messiah. In the context of this pluralistic pagan worship, Peter announces that. And then he says, now this is really important, you're not like all these dead gods in the rock outcropping. You're not like Pan. You're not like Caesar. He was alive, but he was, certainly wasn't a god. You're not like Asherah. You're not like Baal or Baal. You are the living God, the son of the living God, as opposed to all these dead gods. I rest in that so much because I just, I renew my mind all the time when what I'm facing is bigger than what I perceive myself to be. And I say, God is sufficient. Jesus is big enough to handle this. So what about you, my friends? 
How do your values, your priorities, your financial stewardship, how do your prayers, the way you use your time, your parenting, your neighboring, if you're married, your role as a spouse and your attitude and actions towards your spouse, if you're single, your concept of purity and holiness, greed, gluttony, what does that all say about your answer to this question? Who is Jesus to you? My sadness for me, and maybe you can relate, is in our tribe of evangelicalism, so often we keep our answer right here and don't make the 18-inch journey right here to our hearts. Jesus isn't asking that question so you'll win at Bible trivia. He's asking the question so it'll change your life. That your answer would change the way you view life and the way you view your neighbors and the way you view the poor and the way you view the oppressed and the way you view eternity. It would change the way that you pray. Remember that blessed list that people were praying for? The way you pray for them. Uh, the way you look at the world. The way you steward your resources and money. Jesus isn't asking that question so that one day you get to heaven and say, I answered it right. That's not his point. His point is so that you would live well, my friends, under his lordship, and that the world would see something different. And what I love about you is many of you are doing that, and you've done that, and this church is built on saints like you who've done that time and time again. Verse 17, look at this. Blessed, Jesus replied, that means to have a deep level of satisfaction, fulfillment, and purpose, fueled by God's favor. Isn't that what we want in life? A deep level of satisfaction, fulfillment, and purpose. I don't know, that's what I signed up for when I came to Christ. Fueled by God's favor. You wanna live a blessed life, Jesus says right here, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. In other words, you did not get this through your intellect. This was brought to you, literally the word revealed is where we get uh, apocalyptic, apocalypse from. It was an unveiling. At one point you had no idea this was the case. But my Father in heaven unveiled this to you. The only reason you confessed me as Messiah is because the Father unveiled that truth to you. It doesn't betray the intellect, but it's not held captive to the intellect. Do you understand that? This is really important. This is why men and women, this is a key verse, this next verse, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It's why we have ourselves praying over the blessed list. If you don't know what that is, there's uh, on that back table, there's, there's pamphlets called Bless and People. We want God to make a difference in their lives and we're praying that he does. Uh, it's my neighbors, it's my relatives are on the blessed list. Uh, how many people, I wonder, are one prayer away from coming to faith? And this is what we're praying. The God of this age, who would that be, men and women? Satan. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's why I say you cannot be held captive to the intellect in trying to figure out God. Yeah, apply your mind. Your intellect uh, won't, be, it won't betray the intellect, but coming to know Christ is not something you think your way to. It's an unveiling 
from heaven. And the God of this age is blinded minds. That's why we have very smart people who don't know Jesus. People that don't know Christ, it's not like they're idiots. They're blinded. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. I've sat with people, very good-hearted people. I've shared the gospel. And they looked at me and just go, that's not for me. And I, I just, and I, I, not because they're bad, but I want to go, what don't you see? How could this not be for you? Eternity rests on this. What? They're blinded. They're not stupid. We don't put down anybody that doesn't know Christ. They're image bearers of God. They deserve rights because of that. But we pray like mad that God would open their eyes, that God the Father, like Jesus said, would reveal this from heaven. Oh, my friends, I'll say it again. How many of our friends, family, on that blessed list are one prayer away from coming to know Christ? I'm so grateful I was on someone's list at one point that someone was praying for me that the God of the age would be bound and is blinding me. I mean, I could take an hour today. Let's keep going. Verse 18. Then he says this, I tell you, you're Peter. Keyword right here. On this, what? Rock. I'll build my church. And the what? The gates of? Now that you know the region, maybe there's a little different understanding of what Jesus is saying. We'll not overcome it. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So this is the first time church appears in scripture. Question, what is this rock that the church is to be built on? The confession that Jesus is the son of God. But now that we know the region, we know Jesus is probably nuancing that. We understand, as many commentators state and believe, that in addition to that, there is a nuance to his answer. Why would Jesus take his followers on retreat to Las Vegas? Why would he go to a large rock outcropping where pluralistic pagan immorality is taking place, worship of all these small g gods, At the core of it is this area called the gates of Hades and say to them, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Is that an accident? Probably not. On this rock means, now that we know the context, the yes, on your confession, Peter. Yes, the church of the living God will be prevailing based on that conviction, that core conviction. God's alive. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yes, he is alive. But, and, the rock of the gods, on this rock, I believe with my whole heart, on that large rock outcropping where all that's taking place, the rock representing pluralism, paganism in the culture, the rock representing humanity at its most severe, broken, lost, dark, immoral state, The rock representing the ungodly values of the culture. The rock where God's image bearers are dehumanized through sinful idol worship. Right there, Jesus says, right there is where I'm going to build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. In the first century, gates were used in wartime to protect a city. 
According to this verse, I got another question. Look at your Bibles now. Who's to be on the offensive? The gates of Hades or the church? The church. The church is to penetrate the deep, darkest, most vile aspects of humanity. Of course, the creator God of the universe through Jesus would say this. He didn't come from heaven to earth for the church to play it safe, to sequester itself from the big bad devil. He said, what? I've given you authority. Go to the gates of Hades. Go to hell's borders and build my church on it. This week, if you're from Redwood City and uh, part of this community, you know we were rocked this week by a teen suicide. Yet another teenager uh, took her life, freshman in Sequoia, um, in a tragic way. I'm not going to go into detail. It was the gates of Hades. Can I tell you, one of our pastors was at the scene of the suicide ministering to first responders. And that night, when parents needed to be notified, the church was there with the police in the anguish. Can you imagine receiving that news? Neither can I. But the church was right there when that news was transmitted. And the church has been following up with the family. On Thursday, the church was at the police department. Our pastors were there ministering to those first responders who had to uh, witness the unthinkable humanity at its worst. Talk about dehumanizing. The church was there. And the gates of Hades are not going to win. Later this month, we'll have a memorial right here for our whole community. Because we're committed. Wherever the gates of Hades are, we're going to build the church on it. We're not going to let the gates of Hades win. It's why we exist, my friends. In your neighborhood, the gates of Hades are abounding. Build his church there. In your place of employment, the gates of Hades, the values, the morals, and I'm not saying they're bad people. They're loved by God. God loves the world. Build your church in the place of employment, through your character, through your work ethic, through your prayers. Grab one of those blessed sheets. Just pray by name through your cubicles. That's all you got to start with. Asking that God bring in his spirit. The church is the hope of the world, my friends. One of my last questions. Let me make sure. Ah, I got two more. Now do you see why Jesus took his men on a retreat to Las Vegas? Because when he wanted to introduce his life mission and wanted to introduce this concept for the hope of the world after he's gone to church, of course he'd take them to the sin city and say, this is the best the world offers. We've got something better. It's called the church, the called out community, built on the fact that Jesus is alive, the son of the living God. So the last text box in there, in our remaining minute, you answer. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? I'm going to give you 30 seconds and pray for us.
Father, I pray that our answer doesn't stick in our head. We need your grace this morning to allow that conviction to deep, uh, grow deep into our heart, through our hands, through our eyes, through our mind, through our mouth, through our feet. Oh, we want beautiful feet that bring good news to people. Jesus, I pray that that answer doesn't just stay for an hour on Sunday, but Monday to Saturday, we would just be reflecting this week. You are the son of the living God. You're alive. You're alive here at my place of employment. You're alive in this home. You're alive where my kids are, wherever they're scattered. You're alive in the elementary schools in Redwood City and beyond. You're alive in the middle schools. You're alive in the high schools. Jesus, you are the son of the living God. And it's a privilege, it's a privilege to be part of this thing called the church. Father, as we build it, where brokenness is, where paganism abounds, God, we don't want to point fingers. We want to light candles. We want to bring light to the darkness. And we pray that you and your gospel would expand in mighty, mighty ways. We love you. We love you. You just say that? We love you. We love you. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. listening to the Peninsula Covenant Church podcast. We're located at 3560 Farm Hill Boulevard in Redwood City, California. You can reach us online at www.peninsulacovenant.com.